All right, before we begin, um, I want to say just before we begin that uh, how glad I am and how privileged I feel like it is to um, be working with you guys. Um, I just continue to be blown away every year um, at the fact that this many students want to be a part of a ministry, especially one that I'm in charge of. That totally blows me away. Um, so I really appreciate you guys uh, getting up on a non-school day and taking a shower, or maybe not, um, and, uh, and, and putting your, your Sunday worst clothes on and, uh, and being here. I really appreciate it. It just kind of blows me away that just how you guys bring your friends here and are a part of what goes on here. So I really appreciate you guys doing that and, and being faithful in that. Um, so we are in a series uh, on Hosea, and if you're new to the Bible, you might wonder, okay, where's that book? Great question. That's why your Bible has a table of contents. Uh, so if you can turn to the book of Hosea, um, we are continuing this series today. This is our third week in Hosea. And I've been giving you guys some historical background. One of the things that I said was that Israel was a divided nation at the time of Hosea writing. And uh, so if you go to our, our first slide, it's a map. I'll remind you of this once again. This will be the last time I show you a map because you guys start school tomorrow. I don't want to overload you with this kind of information. But um, there's kind of a north, so that the, the lighter color part is Israel, and the southern part is Judah. And as you know, Israel had, had, had how many tribes total? How many tribes were in Israel total? Twelve. And there were how many in the north? How many in the north? There were nine in the north, and there were how many in the south? Do the math. There were three, because 12 minus 9 equals 3, right? So um, Judah's in the south, and then there's Israel in the north. And so Hosea is actually writing to the nation of Israel, the northern uh, tribes. And uh, here's what's happened. There's relatively, um, there is peace and prosperity in Israel, even though they're a divided nation at this point. There is relative peace and prosperity, and just like we do, whenever our life has peace and prosperity and things are going well, what do we do? Do we turn to God? No. We never turn to him in times of blessing. We turn away from him because things are easy and things are good. So this is what Israel did. They turned their back on God. They turned towards idols. And so Hosea is a prophet that God raises up, and Hosea is given this crazy command by God, and the command is this. Hosea, I want you to marry a woman, which Hosea would say, great, but she's going to cheat on you numerous times. Not so great, right? And so that's the command from God, which you might wonder, why in the world would God tell a man to marry a woman that's going to cheat on him? And the reason was this, because he wanted Hosea's life to be a depiction of what the people of Israel were doing to God. They were cheating on him. And so, I mean, so much for that idea of, like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? I mean, Hosea's plan is not so great from a human perspective. But here's the deal. God wanted Hosea to suffer because his hope was that as Hosea suffered, as, as the people came around him and said, Hosea, are you still with that, you know, wife of yours, so-called wife of yours? Why don't you leave her? She cheats on you on numerous occasions, to which he would respond, you mean just like y'all cheat on God, right? Are you saying God should leave you in the same way that my wife, I should leave my wife? And so it's a very vivid picture of, of sin. And so um, here's what I think God's trying to do. 
Everyone knows that people listen more to a man who has suffered, right? If you know someone who has suffered in life, you're probably going to tune in more and listen to them more. In fact, there was a guy when I was in high school in my city, um, there was a guy that came to one of our schools, and uh, he was a Vietnam veteran, and the school was packed out because this guy, his story was, he was in Vietnam, he was a Christian guy, and he pulled a grenade, a grenade pin, pulled the grenade back, and as he was about to throw the grenade, it went off in his hand, and it literally blew off half his face. And he's had numerous, numerous surgeries, so he, doesn't look, he still doesn't look normal, but he's got sort of a new face, and it's, half of it's just really scarred, and he's badly injured. But I'll tell you that there was a room full of like 2,000 people. Anything that guy said, we'd listen to. Why? Because he's a man who suffered. He's gone through some kind of suffering, so we, we tuned in because of that. And the same is true of Hosea. The hope was that if God can put someone in the flesh in front of them who is suffering, much in the same way that God is suffering because of their sin and their idolatry, then the hope is that it would mean more. It would, it would carry more weight. God's words would have more traction because of that. And so everyone, everyone knows in the room right now that cheating is wrong, correct? In a relationship, um, I would hope that everyone in the room knows that to be true. Um, if you don't believe that, please don't raise your hand because somebody next to you will probably hurt you. Um, but everyone knows cheating is wrong in a relationship. Even our unsaved culture, I think, knows that to be true. If you guys walk through the checkout aisle at the grocery store, um, half the magazine's front page is all about who's cheating on who, and you walk by in horror and can't believe that your favorite actress got cheated on, Right? That's how you guys approach it. And so everyone knows that, that cheating is wrong. Um, think about Tiger Woods a couple years ago. I mean, the world wanted to hang him, right, because of what he'd done to his wife. Even non-Christian people know in their heart of hearts that cheating is wrong. So it doesn't, doesn't make people not cheat, but it's still everyone knows it's, it's wrong. And so the Israelites, they know it's wrong. And it's a very vivid picture for God to say, look at Hosea's life. What his wife is doing to him, that is what you are doing to me as a nation. And so we looked at, um, the first week we looked at God's covenant love. This is God's uh, promised love to Israel, his unconditional love for them. We looked at God's covenant love towards his nation. Last week we looked at God's tough love. Sometimes God smacks us around a bit because we're walking in sin and living in sin. And then today we're looking at um, what I'm calling God's tender love. And I'm sure all the guys are excited about that, aren't they? Um, Oh, But today is about God's tender love. And I want you to really get this today. So look at uh, Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Therefore, behold... I, meaning God, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And so we looked at God's tough love last week. And the main point of God's tough love, the main reason why God smacks us around a little bit in his tough love is to get us to repent. It's to get us to turn from whatever idolatry and sin we're caught up in. And, and in a sense, to kind of shock us, right? So, so God never just punishes us 
just to punish. Like, he's not some God, like some of you might think of him as some just, it's not like judgment makes him happy. Like, he doesn't get gleeful about, you know, punishing us because of our sin. But he does it mainly to get us to see our error, see our sin, and, and turn to him in repentance. So the main point of it is repentance. But here we see a different side of God's love. We see um, his tender love. And what God is doing is God is trying to woo Israel back with his kindness. Romans 2, chapter 4, Paul says God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And what I think that means is that if, you've ever, if, you, if you can think of someone that um, is always really, really, really nice to you, even when you treat them horribly, right? And it's like after a while, it's like their kindness is just like sickening, right? And you you just can't stand them even more because you're like, I can be the meanest person to them, and yet they continually show me kindness, and I hate them even more for that, right? And so it's like they're killing you with kindness, so to speak. And so this is kind of what God is doing. He's trying to woo his people back to him with kindness, and, and what I think, um, I think some people see God's kindness as a ticket to sin. I know some of you in the room, you think of, yeah, God's gracious, God's loving, he's kind. And, and you know that to be true, so you think, I'm going to take advantage of that and sin all I want, right? I'm going to take advantage of that. And this is someone who does not understand the idea of grace and God's kindness. Because the point of God's kindness, the point of his grace, is to bring you back to him, Right? to stir up your affections for him, and hopefully to have you see his kindness, see his grace, and want that more than you want your sin. That's the whole point of it. Put, put this next quote up on the screen. When I was reading this passage this week, I, I just had this idea in, in mind, and it's this. If God's tough love is meant to shock your heart, his tender love is meant to melt your heart. What I mean by that is if you experience some kind of a judgment or some kind of um, consequence as a result of your sin that you're involved in, that is God's tough love. That is God shocking you, trying to shock you out of your apathy. If you think of like, uh, what are those deals called that they have on the walls of schools where you shock someone's heart if their heart stops beating? It's, yeah, defibrillator. So whatever, whatever you said, yeah, um, that thing. So um, it's kind of like God's way of trying to shock, tough love is trying to shock your heart back to life. But his tender love towards you, listen to me, his tender love towards you is meant to melt the heart of stone that you have towards him, right? It's a different, it's a different face, but the same God. It's a different kind of, different bent to his love. It's all still love, just the same, but it's a different bent to his love. But it's his way of trying to melt the heart of stone that you have within yourself that's worshiping idols. And so if God's tough love is meant to get our attention, um, then he turns to his tender love. And this, is not, this does not mean that God is some kind of a schizo, right? That he's like, you know, mean one minute and then really nice the next. But it means that that's part of the bigger picture. He's trying to shock you out of your apathy and then hopefully melt your heart so that it turns toward him and that you have your affections stirred for him and that you love him, that you want him more than you want um, the sin that you're involved in. So look at the verse. It says, I will bring her into the wilderness. So God takes them into the wilderness. This is kind of a metaphor here, but God takes them, spiritually speaking, into the wilderness. And if you notice in Scripture, God often deals with his people where? In the wilderness, right? 
If you remember, after they left Egypt, they spent how many years in the wilderness, right? And they did that because they constructed an idol when they got there, and they worshipped it. And so this was a consequence for their sin. They, that generation could not go to the promised land because God was punishing them, punishing them for their sin. And so God deals with his people in the wilderness. Why? To get them to be fully dependent upon him. If you remember, even the food in the wilderness for 40 years came out of heaven, literally fell out of heaven onto the ground, and they would eat from the hand of God. Now, it was the same thing every day, and they grew sick of it, just like you would if you had the same thing every day. But God provided for them in a very real, tangible way. Why? He's trying to get them fully dependent upon him. And so when you think about your life, if you're going through a time of wilderness, so to speak, and it might even be a time of wilderness that is a result, a direct result of your sin against God, it might not be, but it also might be. And that wilderness time for you, God is stripping you of things that you think you need to survive because he wants you fully dependent upon him in the same way that his people had to be fully dependent upon him. Look at verse 15. It says, And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And so this place uh, called the Valley of Accor, uh, this is actually a place that means Valley of Trouble. And I have a picture of it I wanted to show you that um, I found on the, the internet, Google. And uh, this apparently is the Valley of Accor. Not sure if it's accurate or not, but it's a valley at least, right? And, uh, and so this is where they think this may have been in, in that part of the world. But God takes them through this, this valley. He calls it the Valley of Trouble. But watch what the verse says. It says, I will make the valley of Accor, make the valley of trouble, I will make it into a door of hope. Do you see that? I will take what is broken, I will take what has caused you trouble, I will take your suffering, and I will make that, the suffering, the trouble, I will make that a door of hope. You catch that? We worship a God who redeems. We worship a God who takes what is broken and makes it right takes something unrighteous and makes it righteous. And so whatever things we go through in life, so often it's the thing that we think that is the worst thing in the world that God uses in our life. Not doesn't make it you know, perfect and right and, 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 and whatnot, but he takes those things that are broken in our life and he turns those very things into the door of hope. The door that you walk through into a hopeful, better place. That's what God does with suffering. That's what he does in the wilderness because God's in the business of redemption. Look at verse 16. And it says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. I know it's strange when you think about this idea that marriage is a picture of God's relationship to Israel. We often talk about how marriage is a picture of our relationship as the church to God and how marriage is a picture of God's relationship to his people, Israel. 
Um, but girls, this does not mean that you can call Jesus your boyfriend, all right? This does not mean that you say things like, well, I'm single right now, but I'm dating Jesus. That's not what this means. And that's not the picture that the Bible is trying to portray for us. Because here's the deal. If, if you ever walk around, listen, if you ever walk around, girls, saying, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend right now, well, he's probably going to be the only one you're ever going to have, all right? So please don't say that, because I know it is weird. Listen, I know it's really weird that, that, that God is painting this picture of, like, he's saying to Israel, you're my, I am your husband. You will say to me, my husband, and, and he talks about the church being his bride, and it sounds kind of strange, like, that's just weird that God uses that kind of imagery. So it's an analogy. It's a picture, right? And it's meant to teach us certain things, but it's not meant to be taking so literally you're like, I'm married to Jesus, right? So in a sense, it's like kind of true that you're in this covenant relationship with God. He, you, you, should, you should love him, and he's given us marriage. He has given us husbands and wives so that we can have a picture a living analogy of what it means to be in relationship to him. But you can't totally just look at it and go, yeah, it's exactly like that, right? And so it's meant to be a picture for us. And so here he calls his people. He says, there's going to be a day where you're going to call me, God. You'll say, my husband, again, as a nation. And look at this. And no longer will you call me my Baal. They're calling God by the wrong name. I mean, think about this. If, if you're in a relationship with someone and you call them by your ex's name, you slip. You know, what was your name again? That's a bad day, right? So they, they had come to a place where they had gotten so wrapped up in idolatry that they just, they're calling God by the name Baal because they're like, yeah, it's all the same. I mean, the pagan gods, the God, it's all the same. Our blessings, they all come from the same source. And so they're calling, him by, they're calling him by the wrong name. What happened was they gave their idols credit for God's blessing. So they kind of fused these names together. And, uh, and this is, you know, things are bad when you're calling God by, by the wrong name. But here's the point I want you to get from this. When he uses the words, my husband, that's a term of affection, a term of commitment. And he is wanting the Israelites, and us as well, to turn from our sin. Not just turn from it intellectually. Not just to say, yeah, yeah, okay, I know that's wrong. He wants our hearts. He wants us to turn to him and have love and affection for him. And when you have that, your love and affection for your idols and your sin start to take a back seat. So he wants us committed in this love relationship with him. Not to sound cheesy, but to show you this is the kind, he wants your heart. In the same way that you girls and guys long for someone to be married to one day and have love and affection for them, in the same way he wants our heart in a relationship with him. In a sense, it is kind of like a marriage. And to truly repent and turn from sin is not just to intellectually agree that, yes, yeah, something is wrong. It means to have love and affection for God, for Jesus Christ. That's true repentance. Look at verse 18. And it says, I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. 
and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. I know your first question might be, why, okay, what's he talking about with all this stuff about birds and beasts and, and so on? Everyone in this room knows that something is wrong with the world, right? There are things in your mind right now that you're thinking about that you know are wrong with the world. And what he is saying to the Israelites and to us is that here's a picture of what the future is going to look like. Here's your future hope. There is going to be a day when God is going to fix all of the things that are broken with the world. Everything. He's going to make right. He's going to put at peace all the warring nations. He's going to put at peace the, the animals that kill each other. I mean, even my two-year-old daughter knows something in the world's broken. And it's summarized in the word, uh-oh. Okay? She knows that word very well. And she knows there's a way that, that certain things are supposed to be. And when they're not that way, she says, she goes, uh-oh. It's, it's, that's just how she operates. Even she knows this to be true. And she's not even two. And so what happened when Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, the, not just mankind, but the entire created order fell as a result and was cursed. This is why animals and humans kill each other. This is why there are things wrong with the world, and you know this to be true. In fact, I'll even uh, tell you a story. Um, recently, if, if you've been to our house before, you know we have these massive windows, living room. It's like, they're like eight, nine feet tall windows, huge windows. And um, we have no curtains. We're just kind of like, people walk by and we're like, hi, how's it going, you know? And uh, I mean, our, our living room is like, it's like an aquarium for the neighborhood, right? People like peering in and stuff, and it's kind of weird. But, um, but we have these massive windows, and for some reason, all these birds around our house think there's no window there. And so they will literally... Like, like once a day at least, a bird will dive bomb into my window. And they leave imprints like this. I'm not joking. Like there's actually bird imprints on my windows, like 10 of them on one window. I have found dead birds at the bottom of my windows with broken necks. All right? I'm not, I'm not joking. Sorry, ladies. Sad. And so the other day... I hear this, and, and the weird thing is, I'll be reading a book, and it totally, it's really loud, so it freaks me out. It's like I'm reading a book in peace, and it's just like, bam! And I'm like, oh! What was that? And so the other day, this bird dive bombs my window, and then I go to see if it's okay, and it's on the back deck of the house, just standing there, staring off into the yard. Just standing there. He's just like, just kind of woozy. And so I walk outside to make sure it's okay, and meanwhile, this cat from my neighbor's house jumps up and attacks it right in front of me. This is a true story. Bur feathers are flying everywhere, and I'm going, wow, okay. And then later on, I come back, and the bird is like now out in the yard, like maimed, sort of, and, and he's just still alive, but he's sort of trying to, you know get along. The cat runs out from under the deck and attacks him again, okay? Pulls him back under the deck, and then after that, I have no idea what happened. And so, 
when you watch that, you, you go, there's just something not quite right about that. The, the world that we live in is really broken. This is why when you watch um, National Geographic stuff on television, I mean, part of you, it's, like, it's kind of like watching a car wreck. Like, you want to look, but you also don't want to look at the same time. Where, you know, the lion's about, he's stalking his prey, and he's about to attack a gazelle, and, and, and you know you can't help but watch it. And so um, he, he singles one of them out, and, of course, the rest of them run off, and then what happens? He attacks one. I mean, limbs are flailing back and forth, and, and then he's dead, right? And one side of you says, like, that is so awesome. But then one, of you, one part of you says, but there's just something that's not quite right about that. Like, I, I'm not sure how I feel about that. And what that thing in you that feels that way, it basically, it, it's this. It's your acknowledgement that something's wrong with the world, something's broken in the world, and, and God is going to fix that. God's going to make those things right. Even with the animals of the world, God's going to make those things right. In fact, I want to show you a picture. Um, this is my dog and my cat. And... Uh, the funny thing is, apparently my cat doesn't know that dogs and cats aren't supposed to like each other. And so he's always, like, trying to woo my dog, right? But my dog does know that animals aren't supposed to like each other. And so she's looking at me like, are you really going to let this happen, right? And so, um, so the, the, the picture that you see there is kind of a comical picture, but where things are headed is God bringing all of creation back to order. Everything that you think is wrong with the world, that you know is wrong with the world, God's going to correct that and make it right. He's going to fix what is broken. And this is the picture that God's trying to paint for the Israelites. There's going to be a day where everything is in harmony and in peace. So think about all the things that are wrong with the world right now. Think of all the things that are wrong with your life right now. There's going to be an end to that. And God is painting that picture for the Israelites to see and for us to see that that's where things are headed. Look at verse 21. And it says, And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people that you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And so the last couple of weeks we've looked at a couple of videos um, that depict what we just read. And so I'll catch up. If you're new today, I'll catch up to what we've watched so far. We've watched videos, the sort of story of, of Hosea and Gomer, a modern-day retelling of the story. And um, the first week we saw a wedding, beautiful wedding. We saw um, Hosea leave her husband for another person. And then we saw last week... Uh, we saw him, we saw Hosea in the video, we saw him um, showing her tough love, you know, cutting up credit cards, cutting off her cell phone, trying to show her, trying to shock her out of her apathy, trying to shock her out of her sin. And then today you see a display of, of him pursuing her tenderly, and, and you see the tender love of Hosea as he pursues his wife, Gomer. So let's go ahead and watch the video.
quote that I read um, this past week that I want to show you and you guys can discuss here at the end. Um, and the quote is this, God uses his law to crush hard hearts and his gospel to cure broken hearts. And I think some of you in the room, you see God as only the disciplinarian. You see him as only law and justice and condemnation and judgment. That's all you see him as. You see him as the, as the rule monger. And that sends you to further rebellion from him. But I want you to know that today I think he's calling you back to him. And I think you need to know that it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. And it's his heart that, that he's after. That's why you sense his judgment. That's why you sense his justice. And so let him do his work in you today. So go ahead and discuss here at your tables. Go ahead and discuss.